Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How is everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Welcome back for our first episode in 2019. Mr. Mm -hmm. Jeff Gannon, how are you doing over there? I'm doing great, Andrew. How are you doing? I am doing great, as always. We hope everybody else is doing great. We're so excited to... Get back going with the podcast. Kind of mm-hmm. took a little bit of a break into the end of the new year. And when Jeff and I were sitting here, I was like, I'm, I'm excited to get going on the podcast and mm-hmm. fire it up and hear my voice. <laughs> I'm sure everybody else is probably not excited <laughs> to hear my voice, but ready to get going. Hope everybody had a great holiday season and we are excited to be back. So for the first podcast back, I thought since there's been a lot of market volatility lately, okay. I thought that it would be a good idea to to do an initial interest post, kind of review the ones that you do on the website. For people that don't know, if you are a premium member, Jeff writes initial interest posts all the time, sort of just like your first, you know, your notes from looking at a company, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, maybe you could talk about kind of how you do it. Yeah, that's right. So, reading about the company, I read the 10K, things like that, and then I write up an article which basically says from 0% to 100% how interested I am in following up with this company. Yeah, and um, he actually put one up recently, actually today, on the website for Greenbrick Partners. And um, if you do want to get access to that, you can go to focuscompine.com. And if you do sign up, use the podcast promo code, and that'll take $10 off of the subscription price indefinitely, as long as you do stay a member. Mm -hmm. And even better, for other people that don't want to pay, we do have a free section on the website now, right. which has content that we are going to uh, stay consistent with, and mm-hmm. it's um, it's great. All that is required is your email, and then uh, you have access to all of those uh, free write-ups. So right. um, one of the, the four main points that you hit on for the initial interest um, write-ups is, do you understand the business? Is it safe? Is it good? And is it cheap? Right. And that's sort of your filters that you go through when looking at any sort of company to decide mm-hmm. um, if it's, you know, if it's a good you know worth pursuing and and what's interesting is we do it in that exact order right is it understandable business is Mm -hmm. it understandable business if you don't understand it you're probably not going to want to uh see if it's safe or good or cheap Mm -hmm. right so that's that's pretty interesting as well um so i'm just going to fire out these names at you okay and we could kind of go through them i don't know how long each name will take but we could just kind of see where it goes right so with the exception of greenbrook these were um initial interest posts i did last year yes sometime last year yeah and because of, like i said all the, the recent market volatility maybe it's just a good time to um i thought sort of revisit it right because the price might change yeah, yeah exactly and at the end of every write-up what you do is you just give like if you're 60 percent interested or 90 percent interested is it really anything over 50 percent good or how do you typically think about that over 50 percent means i'll probably um look at it again cool yeah cool all right so first one us lime ticker uslm and your interest level was 50 percent right and it was that low 50 percent because of the price okay i was interested in the business um, but I wasn't as interested at that price. Mm-hmm. So U.S. Lime operates, um, owns and operates uh, 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 lime uh, sites for the production of um, limestone and uh, lime for use in um, things like uh, water treatment and steel uses it and some other things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, and limestone is used a lot in construction. And so uh, the company is actually uh, based probably not that far from here in Texas. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an industry that I like. So it's an industry that I like, and uh, they have uh, reserves that would last a really long time too. So um, there's sort of a, um, there's not a lot of competition in the industry generally because of the um, low value. Uh, to weight ratio of lime and so you don't transport it very far i don't i think they mentioned the 10k that they don't have customers outside of 300 or 400 uh, miles or something ever something like that what drew you to the company how is it even an overlooked stock or how'd you come across it um i i don't know how overlooked it is it's a few hundred million dollar market cap um i had looked at it because of the industry uh years ago Mm -hmm. and so i decided to write it up uh, for the website because uh, it just uh, the you know it has a moat basically sure That's why, yeah. do you remember what price it was trading at when you wrote it uh, wrote i don't remember the exact price if you tell me the price now i can definitely give you an idea of yeah let's see how much higher or lower it is let's pull it. so it's at 70 dollars and 73 cents so not very different yeah uh, not that different mm-hmm. yeah yeah if, actually if you look at a a uh, a longer chart the stock really is you probably wrote up about it. it's gone. It's ranged from seventy to eighty bucks. Pretty yeah, sure. So. And it would have been written up really close to that. Mm-hmm. And you liked the business, but you did not like the price. Yeah, uh, I didn't love the price. Um, it doesn't have. Uh, it, it doesn't use uh, leverage really, so it has a little excess cash for that kind of business. Usually, a private owner might put quite a bit of debt on that kind of business because it's pretty predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least when I was looking at it, probably it wasn't producing um, that close to capacity, which is the other thing. Um, because since the, um, uh, recession, uh, you know, a lot of, um, uh, those kinds of businesses haven't been producing as much as they could theoretically be. Um, and like I said, it has very, um, good reserves, um, compared to a lot of times people are interested in things like, um, oil companies or something as a natural resource company, but Mm -hmm. they, they generally have, um, fairly short lives in terms of how much their, um, proven reserves would last and this kind of company has very um long uh, decades and decades ahead of it without having to invest in buying more deposits um so yeah and i think i talked about in the article that i would guess that in five years 10 years 15 years there'll be fewer sites in the u.s producing lime um and each site will probably invest more in being able to um produce more there and a lot of that has to do with just like permitting and stuff like environmental things stuff like that why do you think that there'll be less producing it there has been less for probably almost 40 years or so just so it's been a reducing. decline yeah yeah capex usually goes into um expanding existing sites got it and modernizing them as opposed to um building new ones I mean, it makes sense why it's declining then yeah in regards to that yeah and i'd say that for about 40 years the economics of the industry have gotten a bit better and um they're i don't know the exact number of how big um u.s lime is like if it's i don't know fifth or so biggest um producer in the u.s but the top um three or four now um control a pretty large part of the overall industry so it's probably a little more rational that way cool so that kind of hits the point do you understand the business is it safe is it good is it cheap well we don't know if it's necessarily cheap right Cool. Next one, residual technologies, R-E-Z-I, and your initial interest was 60%. Yeah. Now, this one, do you have a price on it? Because this, I think the price did decline. Um, so I did the initial interest post, I believe, before it was spun off from Honeywell, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, we won't have an exact price on it, but I had an idea. Yeah, so it's at $20.56. Okay. So that is cheaper. I don't know if it's a, a um, 30 or 40% cheaper than what I expected it to spin off at or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Sure. I don't know what it spun off at, actually, the price that it did. Um, but I would have expected that it would have been um, uh, probably one and a half times more expensive when it spun off than it than it is now. Um, so this is a business which is um, a spinoff from Honeywell. Yep. Uh, it has sort of two parts, um, uh, ADI uh, distribution, and um, then it also has a business which is um, the products business for Honeywell. So some of this is actually the oldest part of Honeywell. Um, Honeywell was one of the first companies ever involved in thermostats, and this company would um, be the part that's involved with home thermostats and things like that. So you probably have some products from this company in your home. They, as part of the spinoff, have a deal where they have rights to using the name Honeywell home. Um, uh, and so it'll be things like, um, it's everything from, you know, humidifiers, dehumidifiers, um, Fire and safety stuff, uh, heating and cooling things, um, a lot of controls for that sort of thing. So uh, thermostat is a really good example of the kind of thing that it would be. Sure. Um, and then the distribution business is a little bit more um, for distributing for, say, someone who puts in security alarms or something like that. They also produce some things for um, uh, which are produced under a brand name for some other companies. Uh, so like, uh, examples there would be ADT. Sure. So if ADT has some things that they install in your home, some of the actual devices there that they have, um, controls on things and stuff will actually be, um, made by Honeywell for ADT and we'll say ADT, but it was produced by Honeywell for them. Same, I think with, uh, carrier and, um, some other companies like that. Um, so, and it came up on your radar, obviously, because of the spinoff, because yeah, of the managed accounts. Because of the spinoff. Yeah. So um, the interesting thing about this business is the parting gift, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Honeywell is a very old company, old U.S. company that has roots going back into the very late 1800s. And Honeywell's exists today is sort of the early 1900s. Um, and this company, I believe, is going to be headquartered in New Jersey. Honeywell, part of the business, is uh, has a history in New Jersey. I guess Honeywell is formed from a few different um, companies and mergers um, maybe 20 years ago or so. Um, and some of them have roots back there. So uh, including places like the sites in New Jersey would have um, environmental obligations. And so they're... Um, uh, their sites where they um, had produced things that have significant cleanup costs, very significant cleanup costs. And so I believe at the time they spun this off, uh, the expectation is for, I think I talked about $140 million a year that Residio will pay. Um, so there are certain sites that spun off with it and they have obligations under that. And, um, so the interesting thing there is that that's a cash thing. It's a cash expense and, uh, you can't deduct those expenses for tax purposes. 
So um, if I say like it's $140 million expense or something, it's $140 million in free cash flow that goes out every year. Sure. Um, it's not just a pre-tax thing. So it's not like other expenses that would be $140 million. So the thing there is over time, um, they're not going to have new sites. So they just have to pay on existing sites. And it may be that some of those sites eventually um, don't require the same amount of cleanup. And um, that number goes down over time. So it trends down closer and closer to zero over the years. And I talked about in the article um, exactly how much that would just increase earnings per share, not through any kind of growth, but just if they were paying less and less to the cleanup. Because if you do the math, uh, that amount of money is really big in terms of how much growth it could have. So like I looked at, okay, so say it takes 10 years or something like that. What's the percentage growth? And you gain a couple percent in EPS growth for a decade just from uh, slow trending down in that if that happens. So, And I don't know if it will happen or not, but that's something for people to investigate and figure out. Mm -hmm. So it's very possible that um, you'll just have sort of automatic EPS growth there. And it's easy that the company could be undervalued. Um, long-term if it turns out that those obligations aren't going to be permanent. Because the sort of way that the company would look at it, that I would look at it, that analysts would look at it, is sort of look at this year's results. And those results are going to kind of treat, if you do that, if you capitalize the number, put a P ratio on it or something, it's as if that expense is going to be there forever. And in reality, you're probably not going to spend that same amount forever. It's going to naturally trend down. So that's a sort of interesting kind of thing, which is different from if they had debt or something like that. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's safe when it comes to the overall industry? Um, it's a good question. Uh, the issues there have to do with um, competitive things. So they have um, customer concentration. And the biggest risk, I guess, people would say is smart home stuff. So issues that you would have from companies like Apple, Google, Amazon with something like Alexa or sure, something like that, yeah. um, causing problems for them. I don't know how likely that is because the truth is that this company's products will probably work with all that stuff yeah. rather than that those companies that intending to replace that. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, agree I don't, that. You know, so, um, so I don't know how serious that, that risk is actually over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when it comes to it being cheap, yeah, you think it's cheap relative, obviously, towards... It's cheap. Yeah. Yeah, it's cheap. And it's very high quality. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't know that it will grow. I would. I looked at some things and would say that, in general, lots of pieces of the company haven't really grown in probably about 20 years or mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Next one's an interesting one, because we're actually going to purchase this for the managed accounts. Okay. And then something happened where we couldn't do it. Okay. And that's Pendril, P-C-O-A. Mm-hmm. And your initial interest was 90%, which is technically 100%, right? <laughs> Very close. Uh, that means you yeah. wanted to buy it. Let's just That's say that. True. Yeah. I think we'll see as we go through this that I haven't given 100% to anything yet. I believe that's true. Um, yeah, so Pendrel was a company that I wanted to buy for the managed accounts. It was at that time, uh, the company was going dark. Um, it was a cash shell was all that was left of it Mm -hmm. with very big net operating loss carry forwards um, which means that they would be able to not pay taxes on a lot of income that they would have yes Um, we have a big comment thread on the website about people where there was some confusion about things where um, I think some people wondered if they'd be able to use the net operating loss carry forwards and I think the confusion that people had is um, 
a company that has net operating loss carry forwards can't really be taken over by another company. Mm -hmm. But it's very easy for a company that already has those um, losses to buy something else and then to pay less in taxes because of that. Mm -hmm. And so um, as a result, they would get more value out of whatever they would buy than someone who pays 100% of the taxes. Um, And their losses had to do with a um, very big... It, this was once a very big company, actually, in a, in a different form, and it lost a very large amount of money. Um, and and these uh, net operating loss carry forwards wouldn't expire for a long time. A lot of them, so I sort of talked about what they could buy with the cash that they had. Um, they weren't burning cash at the time; they were producing some income from patents that they had, um, and they were going dark. And so I figured that they would probably go dark. They would eventually buy something. And um, the company would be worth quite a bit. Um, At the time, you could buy this stock, um, at the time I wrote it up, for less than its net cash. And so that means you were putting no value on the net operating loss carry forwards and you're putting no, um, so the tax savings that it would have a big tax shield. And you were putting no value on um, the fact that it had patents too. So it was a really good deal that way. Mm -hmm. The company though um, did a reverse um, stock split. Yeah. A very big one. And I think it raised the price of the stock. What was it to $170,000 yeah, a share was, or something? It was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Where it just became, we couldn't even, yeah, we wouldn't even touch it. Honestly. Right. So we have managed accounts, not a, a fund. So the issue there is a, a fund that buys illiquid stocks might be able to um, buy, say, five shares or something mm-hmm. if it's investing, a, a, you know, a, if it's investing 500000 or a million dollars or something of the yeah. fund's money. But in a managed account, obviously, the problem that you have is that for individual clients, you can't buy a hundred some thousand yeah. dollars worth of stock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In those increments, you can't buy in between. You can't Why do you think that they did the reverse split? It's a way of going private, basically. Yeah. To, so there's a. Make it more illiquid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I talked a little bit about the management there. Um, the major shareholder is someone who... I was going to say, didn't they have kind of a bad rep? I don't know about that. What was the rep for them? Wasn't I mean, it wasn't bad? I talked a little bit about it. I mean, I the they brought in someone uh, eventually who I had looked at two other companies that he'd been involved with in the past. I would say I'm not surprised that they um, basically took... that they went dark and did reverse um, stock split. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think some people, if they had an issue with it, were that they um, were involved with stocks that went dark or did things like that. Um, I don't think that in terms of the returns that the stocks had or anything like that, they were bad, though. Mm-hmm. No. Okay, cool. And, and the major shareholder uh, was at one time a billionaire. I don't know if he uh, lost enough money that he's no longer a billionaire, but yeah. So there was a major shareholder that owned, I forget if it was 60% or something, a very big part yeah, of the company. Yeah, it was more than half. Yeah. Interesting. Next one is a, a stock that we own for the managed accounts. I think I don't think we've talked about it since uh, we talked with our friend Nate Tobik, but that's Qwell, K E W L, Qwell Land Association. And your initial interest was ninety percent, okay. and we purchased it probably what at the beginning of the managed accounts, so probably back in like July or sometime around there. I'm not sure. And then we right. actually bought more of it as well as the yeah. stock has gone down. As the stock went down, increased the amount in it by a lot yeah yeah so it did you was ever think you would learn a lot about timber <laughs> yeah so this is a timber company yeah and uh the write-up focuses a lot on on um 
returns in Timberland and things like that. Mm -hmm. And also sort of the, whether Timberland is cheaper at the moment than the, um, S and P 500 or something like that. Cyclically. Yeah. So, um, over a very long period of time in the 20th century, um, timbers performed pretty similarly to the S and P 500. Um, but some of that was during a period of really high inflation. Um, and I thought that timber was generally, um, less overvalued than stocks, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I, part of that may be because uh, it's tied to housing stuff. Sure. So over the last 10 years or so, I hadn't really appreciated much in price as compared to stocks that had. Um, and then the company was selling somewhat below uh, the appraised value of its of its timber. Yeah. Of, of its timber land. Um, and there was obviously a clear catalyst for the company, which is what also right. drew you to it because for value realization, I guess you could say. Right. So I felt that the company maybe hadn't been um, run to maximize, uh, shareholder value, let's say. Mm-hmm. So the board that had been there previously didn't really, the members of the board didn't really own stock in the company, didn't own a significant amount of stock. And they certainly hadn't been compensated using stock at all, mm-hmm. which is unusual for a public company. So, um, they, the board had much less interest, um, from a selfish perspective, whether whatever they were doing or not, in terms of just the incentives, they had far less incentives than um, most public company boards have and, and most public company executives have to increase the share price. Mm-hmm. And the biggest shareholder of the company, which is a hedge fund, um, and at that time owned about a quarter of the company, I think, um, decided to run uh, a slate of directors to try to take over the board, to get a majority of the board. And uh, they won. Yeah. And so, and actually the company there, the hedge fund is um, one that's featured in the uh, big short. Cornwall right? Capital. Yeah, that's right. Jamie, forget his last name. May, is it? Yeah, Jamie May. But yeah. what's interesting about the situation is that they've been investing in the company for how long? I mean, what? More than 10 years, right? I think 10 years. Yeah. And I don't think they haven't made money. No. So, I mean, like you could kind of see there's a lot of callous happening, I think, for them to kind of try make money on it yeah yeah and i think the stock it's interesting because we talked i think like we said we talked um a little bit with nate about it and um a lot of value investors and microcap value people um talk about it it's one of those things you'll hear people talk about certain land companies and we may talk about some of them now um land companies and things that are involved with water yeah. and things like that get a lot of attention from certain a lot of uh, people don't like them ones. yeah but, like they call mm-hmm. them like it's a land bank that there's right. no <laughs> Nothing to really realize. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like a value, not a value um, trap, but just nothing to be created. So I certainly knew about this company f- for, I probably looked at it 10 years ago. Um, but until this last year, I did not think it was cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was somewhat cheap when I wrote it up. Um, and I think it's very cheap now. And so that's why we bought more over time. Um, at the time I wrote it up, I think that I said... Um, I think I said something like I didn't think it could be worth less than like $102 a share or something. And we had someone else on the website say that he thought it was worth like 117 or something. And uh, this would have been around the time of the of the board, um, the, the proxy battle. Yeah. And uh, since then, it declined from what, 100 something to, to like 70? 70? Yeah, yeah, it's currently at $70. Yeah. And it declined pretty consistently going down that you way. You think it's a lot of the board? People have asked if that's true. But you said that a lot of the old board members, they didn't really own stock. Yeah. So So. it doesn't move on a lot of volume. Um, I would say that it's probably a lack of interest from people. 
um, there's a lot of excitement when there's actually the battle yeah. with the board and stuff, and people have that catalyst. And then over time, as it declines, um, there's not a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. Remember that it's a well. I mean, this is not really a dark stock, but it is a stock that doesn't file with the SEC. Yeah. So I would say the difference is um, it it does have pretty extensive press releases every quarter and it has some and it like does that appraisal thing so it has sort of an annual um report to shareholders but it's not like what you would find in a 10k um and historically every three years it had done an appraisal of the um land i mean we didn't talk all about this but uh there were a bunch of things that i thought suggested that the previous board um, that the, the, the stock might have been worth more than people thought. For example, with the previous board, um, they came out and said that they had um, that they had more timber on their land than they thought they did mm-hmm. because they had been using in the appraisals that they had done a model which um, suggested how much timber they had instead of um, having a timber cruise where they actually did some sampling of uh, counting how many trees they had and things like that for a specific area um, and then extrapolating from that. And uh, they got a loan from, um, I forget if it was, it might have been the company related to MetLife. Um, and when they did that, I think because of that, they had to have it. That's not exactly what the board said, but that's my impression. Um, and so because of that, they, the fact that they wouldn't have known exactly, not, not just exactly, but how much they missed by, it wasn't like 5%. It was a significant amount, yeah. uh, difference. And so some things about that and they have some mineral rights, they have some other things. Um, and when they, they've had the change in the new board, um, they've made some, if you look at what they've done, they've made some things where they've, um, done some, sales of land that isn't that valuable maybe to the government or that they've done uh, things where they've given certain rights to uh, different, usually it's it's uh, related to the government, but sometimes it's other things. Um, I think that they've sort of monetized it better that way. And when you think about how safe the company is, which is obviously your one of your filters, right. I mean, yeah. what do they do? They, they cut down the timber mm-hmm. and they sort of harvest it and, you yeah. know, it grows back. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting business. Yeah, it's an interesting business, and uh, it's now cheap. And I think historically, it, it um, has been a. It's a good enough business. It depend. The issue also is like how much is eaten up by corporate costs and things like that. That yeah. was a pretty large board. Um, it's not a very big company, so there are issues with how much like corporate costs eat into um, the value of the timber, right? But just ownership of, of that many acres of timber. Um, is a is a pretty good investment. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And you did talk about in the article how you would say that you would think the stock would do better over that than the S and P five hundred over the next ten years or something like that. Yeah, I like think that timber as an asset class in general. Timber as an asset class, yeah, I think would do as well or better. And um, and then certainly, uh, I thought that the stock was a little cheap compared to its uh, appraisal value. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the S and P at the time, now remember the S and P has gone down. I don't know, ten percent or something mm-hmm. since I wrote that up. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah. So stocks I felt were a little overvalued, whereas timber was pretty uh, fairly valued or something mm-hmm. historically. Yeah. Cool. Next one: Maui Land and Pineapple okay. ticker MLP. Your yep. initial interest was 80%, and mm-hmm. it's currently trading at $10.31. Yeah, and this is something that we owned for the managed accounts in a small amount, though. Nothing like um, cool. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this was probably um, 
So we probably had, at the time that we owned it, five or six positions, mm-hmm. and this would have been the number f- uh, five or sixth position. Yeah, the last. Yeah, yeah. it was never um, one that moved up beyond that. Um, so it was the most marginal one that way. Um, owns land in Hawaii. Uh, it's uh, owns. Uh, it had developed a resort. So obviously, from the name, you can tell that it was once a pineapple producer. Yeah. But um, and that was a hundred years ago or so. Most of the land uh, is at um, prices that it got in the early 1900s through um, like World War One era. Yeah, very yeah. very cheap. Yeah. Um, we didn't mention that with Cool that their land is um mostly land that they got um actually from the government um and is at prices that are over 100 years old in both cases with both companies they're at, they're held on the books at prices that are 100 years or more um so their book values are unrealistic obviously yeah. um yeah so Maryland and pineapple um has a bunch of acres that some people get excited about um thousands and thousands of acres but that's not the part that interests me the part that interests me is it has i don't remember the exact number 800 900 acres something like that um that is resort land and that's the part of the resort um, that they built um, a long time ago, um, a master plan community that they didn't fill in. And so um, that land is very valuable, and we talked a little bit about that. Um, I think in the write-up I said something along the lines of, um, I mean, realistically, that land's probably worth half a million dollars an acre. Yeah. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we talked to people, they said if you could get anything under – Half, I mean, half a million dollars. That was a, that's a steal. Yeah, yeah. So that's in, um, I guess, West Maui. It's right? West Maui, yeah. which is the finest real estate, if not in, in. I mean, definitely in Hawaii, but probably in the country. I mean, it's very, very nice real estate. Yeah. yeah. So and it's all has all the approvals that it would need um, to be developed, which is different from a lot of things on Maui. Um, a lot of the stocks that you can find that own uh, public companies that have some ownership of land on Maui have all sorts of things that it would take to. Um, fight for di- uh, through different groups that might want it for conservation purposes and things like that um, to get planning permission for it. So, um, and this is basically part of an existing resort. It's right there. Um, a lot of it has excellent views and things because it's basically uh, on a every view is ocean proof. Yeah, yeah, exactly, or ocean viewable. Yeah, right. Because you're basically on a slope looking out to the uh, from the mountain out to the water. Um, so it, the value of the land is excellent. Um, it's something that's likely to hold its value. I think I talked about in that about how over the decades the price of that land appreciated at a much better um, increase than you would have on uh, things like on the mainland. Um, and you can see on maps of Maui and what what is um, not developed and land that's altogether there, um, blocks of land that are left that this company has one of the biggest and most valuable on pieces that are left on Maui. Um, it's, it is something that doesn't have much of a catalyst and doesn't have a lot of capital, which mm-hmm. are the two issues that it has. So if it intends to develop land itself, it needs to borrow to be able to do that, or it needs to sell off some land to be able to invest in the development itself. It had said um, it doesn't give much information at all. It is not a dark stock. It's a public company that uh, files with the SEC, but it gives less information than some of the companies that don't file with the SEC. Um, so, like, it gives less information than Cool does. Uh, it has plans over, like, 20 years or something to develop um, the rest of the land. And it took about 20 years to develop the first the first phase of the um, uh, 
the development that it did uh to give you an idea of what it originally did in the 70s through the 90s it is um condos a couple golf courses one of which is a big pga um course that i think every year they play on um a uh there's a i think a ritz carlton there that was part of the original development and some things like that yeah um so it's a very interesting land very interesting value it's obviously the stock is cheaper than the value of the land would be if someone could buy the stock to have control of all that land and have the capital to develop it themselves then they could make money there is a majority shareholder though um who owns a lot of land uh former um uh ceo chairman founder whatever of aol yeah yeah Mm -hmm. who owns um another company on uh, i was gonna say he's also involved in another company in hawaii yeah yeah he's probably one of the bigger landowners in hawaii Mm -hmm. um so i think the question is how long would it take um to get monetization of the asset and also how much capital the company would have to put in and at what um price mm-hmm. because they really just have a small amount of cash um and uh oh, 10 or so years ago they ran into trouble i don't remember if it was after 2006 2008 in that range of years um they ran into some trouble which involved which forced them to in terms of capital which forced them to sell off some assets that are pretty valuable there so that's always something that could happen so they did sell off some they had some land that they sold off and some things um, buildings and things that they had already there that they had once owned and had to sell off. So that's always a danger. Like I said, they might have to sell things to develop other things, um, or they might have to borrow, and that's difficult to borrow a lot of money to do that. Um, if you look at what the estimated development cost would be of that land, uh, it's potentially quite a bit larger than their market cap. Mm-hmm. So that's the issue that you run into there. Um, but obviously to another owner buying the entire company or something, it would be worth a lot. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So. Next one, and this is one that you wrote about the other day, like we referenced, Green Brick Partners, GRBK, mm-hmm. and your initial interest was 60%. Okay. Um, little of a little bit of a background. Uh, Green Brick Partners, they did a reverse merger. It used yes. to be a shell company. I think I think the name right. was Biofuels, something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was that. ethanol. Yeah, ethanol. And um, Greenlight teamed up with this guy, Jim Brickman, Hence the name Greenbrick, mm-hmm. and they did a reverse merger. And, and Jim Brickman is the CEO of um, Greenbrick Partners, their home builder company here in Plano, Texas. Yeah, their headquarters. Headquartered, headquartered yeah, past their HQ. And a lot of day. their lots for what they plan to develop are actually not just in Plano, but are particularly um, Plano or Frisco, clo- very close to where yeah. I live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they operate in the DFW area and mm-hmm. Atlanta, and then also Colorado, I believe, as well. Yeah, and they also Florida now. Yeah. Um, but the Florida and the Colorado are really insignificant. It's yeah. basically half Atlanta and half DFW. And it was also interesting because Dan Loeb's third point also participated yes. via a rights offering. And then I think they sold off their last year. Their whole position. Yeah. Yeah, last year. Yeah. So originally, um, the way that they did the reverse merger is you mentioned Greenlight, which is David Einhorn, um, uh, Greenlight, and third point which is Dan Loeb, um, invested in the company by basically um, Greenlight did a loan to them, uh, and then they immediately um, bought shares uh, to uh, pay for that um, loan, to pay off that loan. So basically it was a way of um, having, I guess it would have been forty high 40s percent to Greenlight of the company 
and then um, you know some amount, ten uh, percent or something, to third point. Um, together, they probably had sixty percent of the company or something like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas the founder who you mentioned, uh, low single digits percent, I forget three five percent something in that yeah. neighborhood. Um, it was interesting as well. If you've read "Fooling Some of the People" all the time, I yeah. think that's David Einhorn's book. Mm-hmm. Um, Brickman's actually in there because he was a part of. Um, he was. I think he reached out to David when David was shorting. Was that Allied Capital? Was that what yeah. that that company was? The mm-hmm. um, uh, that business, and I think he was also short this company as well. So I okay. think that's how they built their relationship. Jim Brickman was actually in retirement because I remember I read yeah. an, a blog post by Brickman that was from a okay. long time ago, and he like was obviously um, joking around, and, but he said thank you to Allied Capital for keeping me off the golf course. Like this is way more interesting, whatever, because he was also involved in shorting the company. Yeah. Uh, if you read about it, it's a little complicated because you have the predecessor company, which is now treated as the company that it is, which is not by, because of the way that a reverse merger works in this kind of situation. Some of the things that they're referring to in the 10 K have to do with um, the ethanol company. Yeah. And some of the things have to do uh, treating it as if uh, this home building company was the company that was there that whole time. Anyway, the point is you definitely get the impression from reading the company's filings that Einhorn and Brickman knew each other going back um, more than 10 years, Yeah, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, sometime in the mid-2000, something yeah, in that area. Which is yeah. around then. Yeah. yeah. Um, I definitely got the impression. So, um, And like you said, he basically came out of retirement. Mm-hmm. This he ice. chose to. Yeah. to, to I think Dan was maybe 66, 60, somewhere in his 60s. Yeah, he, well, he, I know he ran a successful similar operation probably mm-hmm. on a much smaller scale but i know he yeah. was pretty successful beforehand yeah so the structure of the company is a little different uh, so the reason for being interested in it is because i know um what land it owns okay so about half of the land is in dfw and i in particular like you can read articles and news things and stuff around here that you know what land they own what lots mm-hmm. um and so i and like they give um names of the communities and things and like you can recognize the names of the communities and the streets and things like that because we live around here so we have a good idea of that um and dallas and atlanta are particularly um sort of um good job markets the two good, of the hottest like yeah. gr- growing metropolitan areas yeah, in the I country think dallas right now statistically is the most, yeah. yeah um and atlanta would be in the top five um and they own better lo- locations, like I said. Um, it's not just that they're in the Dallas area, but they're particularly, because I know where the land is there, and particularly the better um, towns and some of the better locations. And they're sort of locations that are, um, a lot of the land has already been developed around them. Okay. So uh, it's just the kind of thing where you'd have more faith. But that's only half the company, because I don't know anything about the Atlanta part. I don't know anything about Atlanta. But I have an idea about the value of the assets uh, and how good they are on the um, the Dallas-Fort Worth part of it. So that's about half of the business. Um, The structure of the company is interesting. So it only owns half of the home builders. So the way that it's structured, and this is a little different, like you mentioned Colorado and I mentioned Florida, that stuff, which will be becoming significant in the next few years, I think, um, it has a different ownership structure yeah. where they own 80% mm-hmm. of one, they're going to own 100% of something. They're, they're starting their own home builder for the first time ever in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where they'll own 100% of it. But right now, all of the significant assets work this way. They own 50% of the home builder. They have 51% of the votes. And they have two-thirds of the board. 
So they're companies that they control while only owning half of them. But the significant part of it is because of their control of it, um, they provide the capital and the land to these 50% owned home builders. So it's a little interesting, and they talked about this on an earnings call recently where people were, analysts were talking to them sort of as if they are just a home builder. But the truth is that they have they have 100% of the land development operations. As you as a shareholder buying into Greenbrick um, have a 100% interest in the early stages of it, which is the land part of it. But then you only have a 50% economic interest in the actual home building operation. So things like increases in labor costs and stuff that affect the home building operation or re- might reduce the earnings of that um, don't affect you in the land part. So you're actually you have really two thirds of your economic value in the company or so, or, or between two thirds and, and three quarters um, is land stuff really, um, and so it has to do with uh, the value of the land and how much it'll go up or down over time. It's difficult to judge because for the last seven years, you've had constant price appreciation, both in Atlanta and in Dallas. Um, recently, the prices have been going up like 5% a year on land. Um, so it, it's a very interesting structure. I talk a lot about the structure there. Um, they also weren't paying um, taxes to the same extent as a company normally would because of their history with the ethanol um, company that obviously lost money. Um so they had net operating loss carry forwards. Um, that will go away, and they'll just be um, a company paying taxes like anyone else because yeah. they're earning so much now that I th- expect that to go away in like a year. Um, Why only sixty percent interest level? Uh, only a sixty percent interest level because it's a home builder. Um, because I don't think it's remarkably cheap. Mm-hmm. It was trading, I think, at like what eleven bucks and now it's around $8. when third point did, announced they were going to do yeah. their offering which was their way of getting out of the stock um it was twelve dollars yeah. and then it went below eight and i think when i wrote it up it was about eight um i don't think it's so it's very complicated in terms of the accounting so if you look at the accounting it would have something like nine dollars a share in book value yeah and it would have something like thirteen dollars a share or so in land inventory because it uses leverage like almost all home builders do um, it has less debt to capital than most home builders, so it has room to expand that. It could probably double the amount of debt that it has and still be within sort of the normal range for a home builder. Um, and so it's growing pretty fast recently, but if it does grow really fast, um, it'll do so by increasing its debt. Returns on capital aren't that high in this business, um, and they're really cyclical, so it's hard to judge. Um, their returns lately have been good, like they've had, I think, a 17% pre-tax, um, so like 17% EBITDA return. Um, which then you do the taxes and stuff, you're still talking about low single, uh, low double digits um, type uh, returns on capital. Mm-hmm. And then they use some leverage, so your return on equity can be even higher than that. But the problem is what happens in bust years, right? So, which is interesting. So we're maybe halfway between the bottom of the number of housing starts in these markets mm-hmm. and the top um, when you had your peak in each of these, which was um, very high. And so um, it's an interesting question about, uh, you know, interest rates going up and yeah. things like that, how much that affects the land. Prices. I know someone that he uh, is a home builder here in mm-hmm. Dallas, and I think he had like 200 or 300 lots. Yeah. And he's selling off everything. Mm-hmm. He's very bearish on on real estate in general. But yeah. I mean, certainly here, 
I got to get them to come on the podcast to talk about real <laughs> yeah. estate. Yeah. And they talked a lot about the um, competition that they're facing um, uh, recently. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have significantly increasing uh, interest. Uh, this is the company that would be most harmed by interest uh, rate increases. So the reason why interest rate increases are so bad for um, home builders is a few things. Um, one, the value of land tends to move opposite of interest rates. So increasing interest rates tends to pull down the price of the land, and land's very important to this company. Two, the companies borrow money, and they um, generally have floating interest rates of some sort. So this one's tied to prime rate minus a little bit. Um, and then um, three, you also have, um, if you are raising interest rates because of inflation, the worst thing to happen to home builders is inflation pressure. And you had, like, in the 70s, you actually had um, margins go to nothing in home building because you had really high rates of inflation in the 70s and, and early 80s. And um, you have really high wage increases and raw material increases and things, and you can't pass that on. You can't increase the price of your homes as quickly as you can, things like labor and stuff like that. So uh, home builders benefit a lot from really, really low interest rates and really, really low wages. Um, so really high home prices combined with really low wages are what's really sure. very good for home builders. Yeah. Um, so they had the last seven years, I would say is like the best period for them in terms of how much better it gets each year. That way you had very low interest rates, but you did not have accelerating inflation and yet you had land going up faster than wages, right? So land prices going up faster than wages is really good for them. Um, so those are the concerns. Uh, I like the company overall. It's hard to say, though, because it's sort of speculative. Um, there's more of a land aspect to this, and it's really hard to tell if they're a better business um, than other home builders or if it's just that they're in certain markets and during a certain period of time. So they were in Dallas and Atlanta, and we only have the last, you know, um, the record that we have is only the period of expansion and housing. So those are the hard parts about it. Mm. Um I would look seriously at the company if it got down to like $6.50 um, a price. That'd be pretty yeah. crazy. I mean, I remember I looked at the company, what, four years ago now-ish. Yeah. Maybe three years, three and a half years ago, and it was around like five $5.30. Yeah. And, I mean, the company's come so far. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, it's improved so much since then, so that'd be crazy if it got yeah. down to that area. Yeah. yeah. You have to be careful looking at the company because the, the business model is different from um, – other companies and it's possible that the sort of structure that they have is better for them um, than it is for their home building partners because they're providing the land and the capital mm-hmm. and they talk about their targeted internal rates of return which are very high for like the loans and the low t- low 20 or in that yeah, area very yeah. high for that it's company. like 13 yeah. to 20 percent yeah. or something and for the land um, that they provide to the home builders that they control and for the um, capital that they provide to yeah. um, so you know they're targeting good rates there um but the concerning thing about it is just the cyclicality of it. You know, it's hard to tell if it's really a better business. So my answer was, is it safe? Um, I thought it's safe enough, but um, not necessarily great. It's adequate, but it's not excellent safety. And I thought the quality is adequate, but not excellent. Mm-hmm. And I thought it's cheap. It is cheap. And I said that, you know, that it is cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Last one we have to go over. Another one that we talked about with our friend Nate Tobik, because this was a oddball stock. Okay. Vulcan International, ticker VULC, and your interest level was 
and it's currently trading at $123. This is one that you'll, listening, have to just go and look at whatever the latest information from the company is. Yeah. Because this is a dark stock. Yeah, they don't file, like, anything. Right. They don't file anything. In fact, they tried to... Don't say they make you sign an NDA. Yeah, you, you can read, go, go to Oddball Stocks yeah. or, or go on Google. He owns and a type single in share. Vulcan International oddball stocks or something like that yeah. and you might be able to find things that yeah, times he's written up um they're truly dark stock and they kind of try to um uh downplay or not not be too public about what things they own they own a portfolio of bank stocks that's a, a good portfolio of bank stocks um this is so you have to look at the company yourself uh, because they talked about liquidating, and so you have to follow up on that. Because it's a dark stock, you won't get a lot of information from that. They'll just say that we're planning to do this and what stages that would be and how they would liquidate and everything. So be careful about the price and um, whether it's going to liquidate or not. So you have to go probably to otcmarkets.com, find any news that they have on it, look at the price. The, that's the best place to start is probably in otcmarkets.com. You may want to buy like a share or something. That's a good way to track a stock like this anyway. Um, and actually, that's why I first was looking into the company was to um, uh, use it as a stock to track when we were first starting the manager accounts. It was actually before we were going to start the manager accounts. What stocks would I want to own a piece of to be able to track things? Truly dark stocks. Sure, and yeah. Vulcan is a truly dark stock. So, um, But maybe I should talk more about like the... Um, like the lessons that you can learn from looking at this kind of like finding this kind of company. So written up at oddball stocks plenty of times. It's the kind of thing that people don't own or something because they're afraid that you'll never get value out of it. But the interesting thing here is because it owned stocks, uh, the value of the company was going up all the time that way. So like th that's also the story with like um, the Timberland company that we talked about. Although I might not have felt the board was going to do anything to realize the value of the timber while the stock went nowhere for 10 years, the timber was still growing. There was some inflation, so the value of the timber is going up sure. over time, those sorts of things. Yeah. So you want to find something like that. Or like we talked about Maui Land and Pineapple, um, the value of land on Maui is more valuable now than it was when the stock was at similar prices 15 or 20 years ago or something. So you want companies like that and not more operating companies where if they're a little negligent, uh, things aren't going that great. So a company like this, you could tell that they own stocks that were probably going up in value all the time. Um, you could look lots of places online, whether it was oddball stocks or on message boards and things from people who had some information about the company. And in general, the company is like some dark stocks where um, a company might be dark and might not be commenting on things for a few reasons. Um, one is that they just don't care or something like that. Another one is that they don't want a lot of people to discover the stock and realize what sorts of things they own and pressure them to do something like liquidate. And uh, the other one is because they want to sort of rob the company of its assets and sort of enrich themselves and things like that. And so you want to look at the difference between those two sorts of situations. Is the company going dark and everything because it wants to um, not have uh, not have shareholders looking at it because they might want to be paying themselves high salaries and things like that? Or are they doing it more because they might have valuable assets there? So when we talked about like Pendrel, that was one that had some examples of some some signs of something that sort of wanted to go private, basically go dark and then do a, a reverse split so that you're basically push
pushing out the are, smaller shareholders, mm-hmm, right? Sure. That's a good sign if a company basically wants to sort of go private and it has a big shareholder in it and things like that, that's a pretty good sign that they're doing it because there are assets there that are valuable. And so you want to look into it, see if there are assets that are valuable and see where your interests are aligned with um, the um, big owners and things like that. And so that would be the example there um, with Vulcan. So you could learn about it, read about it, uh, about what Nate wrote about it, and try to look online for other examples of that. There are other companies out there that are like that. Um in some ways, and it's sort of a better thing to go look for them. Right now, Vulcan as a stock might not be that great because the news had already come out um, after I wrote about it and stuff. Um, Actually, while I was writing about it, I think the news came out of them planning to um, liquidate, and once it becomes sort of to dissolve the company, and once it becomes sort of a catalyst in this kind of stock, usually there's not as much value. Although, if they don't do anything for a little while, sometimes people can get bored in that opportunity can come back Mm -hmm. but often the best time is to buy these stocks where there's a ton of value and yet no one sees a catalyst yet and then sometimes the catalyst does happen Mm -hmm. yeah cool i think that uh that was a great first episode Mm -hmm. hit on everything we want to talk about yep perfect well um we hope everybody enjoyed it thank you so much for tuning in so we have some housekeeping stuff because i didn't really talk about in the beginning so the website's a little bit different now if you haven't Mm -hmm. been to it um as i referenced there are a bunch of free posts on there i mean free content on there now and right. you could become a free member all it requires is an email yes. and what they'll also give you is a weekly memo from jeff right which, which is the only thing you'll get from me if you're a free member yeah so and of course if you're a paid member you still get that free memo as well right so we should explain that so the free uh, membership which you can get by just giving your email will give you a weekly memo from me which will include links to the content, any new content on the site. That's free. That's free, that yeah. you have access and to. And it's, it's an investing principle. So pretty yeah. much the same if you've been on that list. Right. So it's a general investing principle uh, memo that you'll get from me. And then you'll have links to um, stock write-ups and things by people who are not me. Yeah. If you're a free member, what you get is links to content on the site that I did not write. Mm-hmm. So we have – the site has um, – I don't know exactly, but maybe recently f- – it's probably something like 50-50 between things that I write and things that other people write. Yeah. And if you're a free member, what you're going to get is the access to the things that other people write up. Mm-hmm. If you're a premium member, you pay, then you will get uh, you will get a um, something weekly from me that is in, in, not a memo, which we said you also get access yeah. to the memo, but um, you will get a it's watch like a, list. Yeah, watch list watch that shows list. your research pipeline and right. stuff that you're looking at, the, the price, and at. Yeah, everything yeah. that you're interested in. Very, I was pretty impressed when I saw that today. <laughs> I was like, wow, this, this looks great. <laughs> so, um, so like, for instance, on that one that, that was just most recently sent out, number one was Greenbrook. Yeah. But then after that, there's another stock on it, which in all likelihood will be the stock I write up um, next week. Yes. Right. So, and, and you basically should expect that you'll get that uh, on Mondays. And also, they will reference content. They'll have links to whatever content came up between the in the last week between the two Mondays. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, you can now go to the site. If you want to be a free member, you just put in your email address. And if you want to be a paid member, there's a place that you can go to join. It's a good sales pitch. 
Good, yeah. job, good job out of you. Uh, and the the um, memo this week was um, about a stock watch list. Yeah. Basically huh. how I do my stock watch list. Yeah. yeah. So the premium members got the actual watch list, whereas the free members got me talking about um, the way that I do it. And like I talked about how I just have sort of three lists and things like that and why I do that. That is correct. And we have lots of big goals for Focus Compounding this year okay. and to improve the podcast and keep the content you know, as good as it can be, I think the schedule is going to be, we are going to try having like one week you and I are together. And then okay. the week after that, we're going to try bringing on individuals. I think okay. that got a lot of people have emailed in and said that they really enjoy, um, guests. you know, bring on guests and, yeah. and not just stock market as well. I mean, it could mm-hmm. be entrepreneurs or, you know, whatever, but more so obviously stock market based because right. that's a lot of our uh, our listenership. So other than that, thank you so much to everybody for tuning in with us. If you do want to get access to those memos re-referenced, go to focuscompounding.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I have been posting a lot of content again on Twitter. I kind of took a break into the end of the year, but you can follow me at, at focusedcompound. And other than that, thank you so much for listening in. If you want to support Jeff and I, of course, this is free. Feel free to give us a rating and review on iTunes. That helps us out so much and uh, we definitely appreciate that help spread the word so other than that thank you so much to everybody have a great week we'll see you next week take care hey this is jeff gannon and that was the focus compounding podcast the podcast where andrew and i talk general investing concepts if you want to know more about specific stocks i like go to focuscompounding.com where you can read stock ideas written by me and other members membership costs 60 dollars a month but if you use the promo code podcast it'll be 50 dollars a month for you Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.